0: Welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methods DeBakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. Although COVID 19 is primarily an upper respiratory infection, there is an increasing evidence of cardiovascular complications, and cardiac patients are particularly susceptible to severe infection.
1: Organizational wise, clinical wise, it really changed our professional priorities. But also it has an emotional, psychological aspect, which many of our colleagues and clearly sounded voiced out looking at the sense of unpreparedness and inadequacy. There is a fear and anxiety, the fear of suspending time and changing priorities. So once we learn about this and we get prepared for this, we will all together defeat this virus. And... Get back to our normal regular life hopefully soon.
0: On today's podcast, Dr. Moaz Almala, cardiologist from Houston Methodist Hospital, delves into the cardiovascular considerations for COVID 19 infections and best practices for managing these complex patients. This Grand Rounds presentation was recorded on April 9th, 2020. Now let's get into it.
2: So, uh, first off, let me start off with introducing uh, Dr. Almala, who really needs no introduction. Uh, Mawaz is the uh, Beverly B. and Daniel C. Arnold uh, Distinguished Chair. He is the Director of Cardiovascular PET and the Associate Director for Nuclear Cardiology here at Houston Methodist Hospital. Uh, Mawaz uh, completed his medical degree uh, in Beirut and then uh, came to the United States where he did his uh, training at Henry Ford, at Wayne State, and at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, we're very pleased to have Mawaz here as the head of Cardiovascular PET, developing the a new Cardiovascular PET service line. Uh, Mawaz's uh, research uh, has really focused on uh, advancing the prognostic value of cardiac imaging uh, for uh, risk prediction, uh, as well as patient management and optimizing outcomes. So uh, Mawaz is very well published with over 300 publications uh, in uh, peer-reviewed journals and book chapters, uh, numerous grants. And, uh, you know, I like to say that Mawaz, you know, in addition to being an imager, uh, he's an outstanding cardiologist as well. And in fact, is a recipient of the uh, uh, teaching award uh, last year from the Houston Methodist trainees. Uh, And so Mawaz has really kind of taken up the challenge here to try to uh, give us more insights into what we know currently in this very rapidly moving uh, uh, field of cardiovascular
1: considerations with uh, COVID 19. So, Moaz, welcome and pleasure Thank to have you. you here. Thank you, Deepan, and thanks for having me. So, today it's an unusual grand round for me because I'm moving a little bit away from my comfort zone of imaging to talk about infectious diseases and their cardiovascular complications. But this is a timely topic that we need to all know about uh, given the changes that are happening in our field and our practices. So I'm gonna start by a quick introduction about the virus itself. It is an RNA virus and uh, it is part of the coronaviruses that we know at least about four of them but the one that had the popularity are mainly the SARS and MERS which have caused epidemics with high mortality and uh, it's believed that this virus transmitted to humans from the uh, from uh, it was like kind of made some changes and mutations in uh, animals and then made it to humans in the city of Wuhan in China And despite some speculations and thoughts, at least there is no evidence at this time that this is the product of purposeful manipulations. In terms of clinical symptoms, this is a nice review that clearly shows that there is a wide variety of symptoms in this Infection, mostly fever, but fatigue and chills are common. And there are some other, infection, other symptoms that are common in upper respiratory infections like headache, myalgias, sore throat, and protective cough in some of these patients. Uh, prevention is very important, and especially social distancing, but also being careful of the surroundings. The virus can be killed by alcohol, bleach, and betadine, but it can stay on, sur- on surfaces for about up from one hour to week. This is data from the New England Journal of Medicine, where they could detect the virus almost up to 96 hours on some surfaces after uh, being uh, inoculated by the virus. There are three phases for the virus, at least in the, when the patient get the infection, you start with the viral response, and this is not very different from any other upper respiratory infection, it Lasts around five days where there is lymphocytopenia and other general symptoms. Some patients progress to have some abnormal chest imaging, and now they have the pulmonary phase, And then finally, which is the most difficult one, which is the host response, where there is the hyperinflammation and there is the uh, cytokine storm in this patient, which usually happens after 10 days. If we just plot it in a different way, and we're gonna go over in more details, there is the stage one where the symptoms might be just like a simple respiratory infection, and it may not be differentiated from any other viral infection. The real concern are on the stages two and three, and this will be discussed further in the upcoming rounds next week by our critical care group who deal with these patients in these stages. Um, I'm going to try to focus on the cardiac uh, manifestations in these stages because this is when they potentially happen and the therapies may be a little bit different. And one thing to keep in mind that many of these patients, when they make it to the later stage, we know that these are the patients who are kind of have the comorbidities. So for example, looking at uh, the um, experience from Italy, it looks like among those who required ICU admission, most of them actually, uh, a good percent of them had hypothyroid hypertension and other comorbidities one thing to keep in mind that not everyone who get the virus is going to be symptomatic at least the epidemiologic data suggests when you do extensive testing and this is very common also in the mers during the mers outbreak where a lot of subjects or patients will get the infection, around 30% of them, they will have no symptoms. You would not know about them unless you do testing. And then eventually you will detect antibodies and they can be immune. However, they are they continue to be contagious in that period. Lucky enough, we have about 55% of the patients who will develop only the mild viral symptoms or mainly the stage one, and then they go to become immune without major complications. I think our main concern is these 10 to 15% of these patients who develop the severe symptoms or the critical symptoms, and these are the ones that remain contagious longer And these are the ones that we know all about because they develop, they require a lot of healthcare resources, they require a lot of care, oxygen intubations and these advanced therapies. But they are as contagious as the other ones or maybe a little, uh, but one thing to keep in mind that even those with no symptoms or mild symptoms might be contagious in this period. I think one thing to keep in mind, and this is more for the cardiovascular complications in these patients is that, while some of them have the acute phase we're talking about, once they recover, there is still a minority who will go into a convalescent period, and some of them might have a chronic infection type. And when I was practicing in the era of mers covid we've seen very few patients who developed like LV dysfunction, and remain to have some mild elevation of troponin and mild depression of their LV function over time. And it will be interesting to understand mostly what will happen at the myocardial level and the risk for sudden death and others. The case mortality rate varies obviously by age. However, it's not only in elderly, while it's highest in the elderly, it's about 18% among those who are 80. There have been reports even in infants and young adults that they could develop the severe infection which results in mortality. And this virus is actually worse in outcome compared to Uh, seasonal flu. So don't mistake it with the seasonal flu. This is like a highly contagious, but also have higher association with worse outcome and uh, death. I think if we want to identify those who died versus did not die, this is a study from China that clearly looked at comparing the characteristics of those who died and did not die. And those who died actually are the ones who started to develop the acute cardiac infection, the acute kidney injury, and then later on the pulmonary complications. So even those who had ARDS, some of them still recover, but once they develop the acute cardiac injury and the acute kidney injury and multi-organ failure, this is where it, many of them have worse outcome and high case fatality rate. I'm not going to cover a lot on the chest findings, but we need to be aware of them. They'll be covered more in detail next week. But I just wanted to say that many of them at very high percent are actually abnormal. This is from the lecture and the outcomes depend really on the ICU admission. And once they uh, develop these findings, then they start to have um, worse outcome. I think one important aspect to note, which was highlighted in the ESC uh, webinar by Professor Stefan Ackenbach, that we need to have high suspicion and maybe image the lungs of these patients whenever we have high suspicion. If CT is available, it's preferred over X-ray and the typical consolidation which has been reported with viral pneumonia but i think it's this is a very crucial line if ct ct is more accurate and the typical ct finding should be diagnostic even if the pcr is negative repeat the pcr and we had few cases where the pcr initially was negative and then the patient had a chest CT that was very diagnostic, and later on, a repeat PCR turned out to be positive. So it's very, very important to have a high index of suspicion in this patient and not rely on a test, but rely on the findings of these patients. The Fleschner Society just yesterday or the day before released their guidelines and they also emphasize these things. So I just want to highlight a couple things from these guidelines. They clearly say that in a COVID patient, if you have mild features, so your index of pretest probability is kind of low, then you're starting with a negative test then this is the only time that you may potentially stop however in patients with severe symptoms even if they have a negative test imaging is indicated and if you have high pretest likelihood even if they have a negative test now imaging is indicated so you should not shy away from imaging these patients chest-wise simply because they have a negative PCR test so now let's focus on the cardiovascular um, considerations in these patients. And the first question that come to mind is this issue of the ace controversy that came out early on. And as you know, the uh, renin and Jutensin system is, very, is um, something that we deal with in our patients, commonly we have angiotensin, which angiotensinogen, which comes from the liver, and the kidneys. It's transferred, transformed to angiotensin one. Then it goes to the lung, where there are the receptors, the ACE2 receptors, which change it to angiotensin two, and then it exerts its effects on the body. Now, this receptor, the angiotensin, uh, the receptor, is actually what the virus is using to get into the lung so technically at least pathophysiologically if you have angiotensin 2 or uh, if you're using ACE or and ARBs you have an upscale of these receptors so technically you're increasing the permeability of these viruses to the lungs Mm -hmm. and then there is a theoretical risk of increased lung injury and infection And this has been clearly uh, seen here in the cartoon. So you have more of these receptors, the lung, the virus make it in uh, in there, and then there is concern about increased vascular permeability. However, the data has not been very consistent on increased risk, and we don't have strong evidence at this time to suggest that patients who are on ACE or ARB may have worse outcome compared to those who are not. And as you see here in the guidelines, both the Heart Failure Society, ACC, the AHA, back in March clearly says that there is no data demonstrating beneficial or adverse outcome. And the ESC also have similar um, uh, statement. So at this time, we don't recommend to stop or start ACE inhibitors or ARB in these patients. What we would recommend is that if the patient has a clinical indication for these from heart failure and others, then it will be continued at this time. I think a lot of us are so much concerned about cardiovascular involvement and cardiovascular manifestations and coronaviruses have been described since the early days of SARS. So this is not specific to uh, COVID-19 or the current, uh, the newer virus. It was described during the SARS where there have been episodes of tachycardia, bradycardia, arrhythmias. Mostly transient, there have been some reports of cardiac arrest and there are also some evidence of subclinical injury by echocardiography and others. Uh, During MERS, we've seen few cases of new-onset myocarditis or I had one case actually of new-onset LV dysfunction that on multiple MRIs never improved significantly. And now with COVID, we're starting to see some reports of cardiovascular involvement and myocardial injury. And we're going to go dig through what are the potential manifestations, and here they are. So you could see in these patients type 1 MI, type 2 MI, myocarditis, coronary microvascular dysfunction, and finally stress cardiomyopathy. And the mechanisms that have been suggested are variable. Obviously, most of them are just like thought of, but they are not... uh, We don't know exactly. These are mostly hypotheses at this time. So if we summarize the mechanisms, it could be mainly either direct myocardial injury by the virus or it could be from respiratory failure. These sick patients will have acidosis, hypovolemia. So it's kind of a typical type 2 MI that we see in any otherwise critically ill patients in the medical ICU, or it could be an immunopathology hyperinflammation kind of cytokine storm that will impact the myocardium and result in any of these arrhythmias, acute coronary syndromes, and sudden death. So myocardial injury can be seen with, associated with increased interleukins, increased D-dimers, increased acute phase reactants with ferritin and LDH. But we have a more specific marker which is high sensitivity troponin. I just want to show that these increases have been associated with worse outcomes. So those patients actually who passed away from the virus have higher levels of D-dimers and had higher levels of high sensitivity troponin. Note that these patients start to have this increase in high sensitivity troponin early on and went up significantly among those who pass away for those who (coughs) uh, survived the uh, infection. Now, the biggest question that is listed in the uh, literature, if you go, there are multiple controversies whether this is a true myocardial injury versus a more of a high risk marker that we are detecting in these patients simply because they are critically ill and have high Uh, have otherwise high uh, risk and high metabolic rate and others. But if we go in the at least the reported literature, and this is as of yesterday at like 7 p.m., there are more papers that came after at like 9 p.m. from New England Journal. And every day there are more papers that come out and shed more light, but as of yesterday evening, I'll review some of the main studies that looked at this. This is from Wuhan, China, looking at those who are myocardial had myocardial injury, in a sample size of 416 patients, about one in five patients had evidence of myocardial injury by positive troponin. Now, obviously these are, who are these patients? Are these in the ICUs or these are mainly the hospitalized ones? So we are picking up some sicker patients, especially when they had limited resources. But the biggest question, who are these patients? They are the older, the ages, we talk about 74, more often had hypertension more often had diabetes, coronary heart disease, CVAs, heart failure, COPD, and other risk factors. And like every other critically ill patients who have a positive cardiac marker, the presence of positive troponin was associated with worse outcome compared to those who did not have it. Again, is that a cause or just association? We've seen this in many other studies looking at sepsis, DKA, and others. So it's not surprising that these patients with positive biomarkers have worse outcome. And when they did the multivariate analysis, the presence of ARDS and cardiac injury were the main predictors of outcome and death in these patients. Now in another series, looking at this also from China, and now you have a higher percent. So obviously it depends on who are these patients, where you're looking for them. And now in this series, it's about 20, 28% of those patients had uh, elevated troponin, and there is worse outcome in this population. A third series on March 19, and now this is from Washington State, and as you know, this started in a higher like uh, multiple uh, patients actually, um, who had uh, comorbid uh, heart failure representation mostly because of nursing home. These are the patients who are the critically ill patients and about those 33% develop cardiomyopathies in this population. So what do we know about the troponin and BMP? And this is like from an ACC statement. There are multiple mechanisms that could explain that, as we just alluded to. It could be demand ischemia, could be plaque rupture, could be direct non-coronary myocardial injury, and could be all of the above, not just one mechanism, and could be also the result of the cytokine storm. So the, currently, the ACC says measuring troponin or natriuretic peptide if diagnosis of acute MI or heart failure being considered on clinical grounds and if you are going to impact your management. However, there are another school of thought that you see in different editorials telling you that maybe we should measure it on everyone because it's a high-risk marker and it will help us identify those who are critically ill maybe before they manifest it and it could be our friend to identify like we do the white blood count like we do the creatinine like we do other biomarkers maybe doing troponin high sensitivity troponin early on not with the intention to go ahead and revascularize these patients or do unnecessary testing on them but just another high risk marker i don't think we have evidence that using this will impact the outcome of this patient. But you can see here, we have different school of thoughts and we still have to see where do we settle this on uh, the grounds. Now, we're looking at ACS and STEMI in these patients. Uh, We still don't know what's the prevalence in the COVID setting. In fact, if you go on Twitter now, there is like a uh, kind of hashtag looking at where are all these currently myocardial infarctions disappeared and this is we're seeing nowadays kind of less of these ST elevation myocardial infarctions and now we're adding a new variable to management of these patients in this era and this is not only the what is the best outcome for these patients and what's the best course for these patients. Now we're adding the staff safety and the cat lab staff exposure during this period now if you look at the different societies and different hospitals now there are new guidelines from the uh, sky and the uh, acc looking at these st elevation mi and non-st mi i'm not going to go through the details of algorithms but technically what these guidelines say if they are COVID negative treat them as you are usually treating them. When you are, they are COVID positive, you can potentially think of fibrinolytics in these patients. And also two things to consider is the safety of the staff as well as the safety of the patients. So you may wanna reserve interventions for these like high-risk patients that may not impose higher risk on these patients. So for nano CMI, you don't want to routinely take them to the CAT lab, but mainly reserve it for those who are like high-risk patients and try medical management initially for ST elevation MI, consider fibrinolytics, and maybe consider more often rescue PCIs for these patients. However, if you go on Twitter, which has been a major source of medical information nowadays, especially in this era, because because cases make it over there much faster than the uh, medical publications. If you look at it, there have been multiple reports of patients like this one who came in with ST elevation, clearly ST elevation myocardial infarction, pre-COVID era, nobody would question taking this patient to the cat lab. And this patient might have an RCA or CERC lesion. It depends on the dominance, but this patient went in and had clean coronaries. And we still don't know what is this, and this is considered to be COVID myocarditis. in this at least report. This is another case, again, COVID positive. And let's see if I can run this. But this is a patient, unfortunately, I'm unable to run this. Uh, movie, but this is a patient who had clearly stressed cardiomyopathy with Takatsubo, and this is a patient us also, also from Twitter that clearly sees that. So what are these patients with elevated troponin? They're not always a C-elevation myocardial infarction, but they could be through myocarditis. They could be stress-induced. There have been some reports on potentially coronary endothelial dysfunction in these patients. They could be hypoxia associated or acidosis associated, and they could be myocardial depression due to, to the cytokine storm that we may improve with improvement overall. But also think of other common things that we see in critically ill patients. This is a COVID patient, you can see the typical findings on CT, but also on the CT, there's a massive large saddle embolus here in this patient or large emb- pulmonary embolus and the positive troponin in this patient is due to the RV strain kind of emb- the uh, pulmonary embolus rather than maybe cardiac involvement. Uh, this is another case looking at a 53-year-old woman who's COVID positive and you can see some ST elevations and also an inferior leads. But this patient also had a lactate of 17.1. She had an elevated BMP and troponin, her EF is 40%. Is this a direct involvement? Is this related to myocarditis or not? Lucky enough, this patient had an MRI and she clearly has myocardial edema and we still need to know what is the mechanism of that. And this patient, even after a few many days, She remained to have a low ejection fraction as per the report of 40% in there. This is another case from the literature published yesterday looking also at, for example, Takatsubo ST elevation, uh, infiltrates suggestive of COVID. And this is a patient with clean coronaries now demonstrated by CTs. And she had a uh, edema, which is seen mostly in the mid ventricle and noted to be reverse sacatsubal. And on the website of the uh, JAMA Cardiology, where this is public, sorry, in the European Heart Journal, there are some nice views of the senior MRIs there. And how do we treat these patients if we're thinking they are related to myocarditis? This is one case report from China where they actually had similar situation BMP went up, normal coronaries, uh, troponin very high, EF of 27%. They thought, obviously, fulminant myocarditis and cardiogenic shock. This patient started on prednisone and IV immunoglobulin, and later on, the CT improved, the EKG improved, and LV ejection fraction went up to 66% and troponin and biomarkers went up significantly. Unfortunately, in this case, there is no cardiac MRI to fully understand the potential mechanism of this. So what is the difference between this type of myocarditis in COVID versus the other myocarditis that we see? And this is from a uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, co- webinars that looked at, similar things, uh, considerations in COVID, and can clearly see that our population now in COVID that develop potential in myocarditis are not your, our usual that we see in, critical, in clinical care, which is much younger. Now we're dealing with a much older population. And as you see here, it's uh, associated with worse outcome and we still need to understand the mechanism. It's still not very clear why we have these patients who are having positive troponin and we need to understand uh, the situation. Unfortunately, autopsy is not done on many of these patients who pass away with high troponins. So we may resort to delayed CMR in these patients and maybe potentially add some other acute imaging like PET to understand the mechanism of these inflammations in in these patients. Another concern for these patients are arrhythmias. And obviously, as you know, we detect arrhythmias by doing EKGs. But I just thought that this was uh, a nice demonstration by Dr. Levy of a normal EKG. But remember, many of these patients are being prone in the ICU, and you don't want to just unprone these patients to get an EKG. So this is the same healthy volunteer who had a prone EKG. And now you start to see a couple things. So we probably need to learn about how to look at these prone EKGs, where now you're seeing opposite forces. I'm just going to zoom on it just to make it easier to see. So now we have to see, we got to use to see lower amplitude and opposite forces in these prone EKGs and V1 to V3. But there have been multiple also nice reports on uh, EKGs and uh, on Twitter at case reports looking at COVID-19 unmasking Brugada syndrome like in this case report. This is another case from the VA in Chicago where you're looking at a patient who had a clearly uh, Uh, Brugada kind of EKG with normal coronaries, which later on resolved completely. And arrhythmias have been kind of reported to be in about 17 or 20% in one series. The biggest concern are these VT, VFs, whether in the acute phase or even long-term after these patients discharge, if they develop anitis of uh, scarring in these patients. And malignant tachyarrhythmias, positive troponin, you have to consider myocarditis in these patients. There have been a lot of medications that have been used actually or suggested to be used in these patients. I'm going to focus on the most famous medication, the hydroxychloroquine and the dithromycin. I'm not going to look at it in terms of a mechanism on why we should or should not use it. Obviously, you might hear next week from our colleagues that the data is kind of very uh, fluid. So it's mainly looking at those patients who got the medication and looking at how often you can detect the virus in them. In small numbers, this paper was published, got a lot of publicity, and now some sites are using it, not in the ICU, but a lot of it is mostly at the level of exposure and on medical wards. But uh, I just wanted to look at what would be the cardiovascular implications if we're going to use this medication strongly. Now, obviously, after this paper was published, we had a famous uh, tweet that resulted in significant interest in the medication and also by the lay public. Uh, We're going to try to uh, limit our... Uh, complications from this drug because this is something that happened in Arizona where somebody is so concerned about the virus, took a dose uh, of the okay. medication and eventually multiple doses and eventually passed away. I thought it would be interesting to note how these tweets are impacting these patients and physicians. And here it is. Physicians are very skeptical about this medication. I'll quote you a couple tweets also looking at this saying that... If these are going to be helpful, we are using them more a lot in patients with uh, lupus arthritis and others. And according to Dr. Faust here, we are diagnosing COVID left and right in this population. So there's some skepticism about them being beneficial. And this is another tweet by Dr. Eric Topol from California looking at making an empty slide showing the evidence for the use of these medications in combination or alone in this patient's So it's really an evidence-free zone and it's mostly hiked up by tweets and uh, uh, limited evidence. But these have an impact on this patient. So this paper I showed you earlier was published on 17 March and this is now looking at the internet search for this medication. So you can clearly see here that from 17 March to 19 March or like almost 20th of March, there was very limited interest in terms of the search. And then once that medica- that tweet came out and that famous press conference came out, you can see the surge of internet searches for these patients. So I went ahead and I wanted to see myself, how does it work? So you go on Google Trends and put in hydroxychloroquine, and you can see here this minor bump at the 16, and now you can see on Google how often people are searching uh, this trend in here. And there was a recent minor uh, trend just like a few days ago when this was again highlighted in the uh, recent news conference uh, this past weekend. So, But we can get some important information from this. So where are these searches happening? They are happening in New Jersey, Michigan, New York, and Louisiana. And some of these actually were before we knew some of these are going to become a hotspot like Michigan and Louisiana. So it might give you some understanding of what you need to do or where are the potential trends and start of symptoms for these uh, patients. So going back to if from a cardiovascular standpoint, I'm not going to discuss the efficacy and safety of this medi- efficacy of this medication and treatment, but I'm going to focus about its potential side effects, which is QTC prolongation in these patients. So the ACC says that it should occur in this context of setting of clinical trial or registry. Unfortunately, that's not happening that much often and use of outside clinical trials should be done by an infectious disease or COVID-19 expert with cardiology input. And what do we need to do as cardiologists? This is clearly highlighted in the ACC document pre-enrollment, we need to discontinue all other non-critical QT prolonging medications, assess EKG and renal function, measure QTC, and measure the baseline risk of QT prolongation. And the ACC clearly make it clear that we need to know now about a new risk score called the Tisdale score, which can be found on the the ACC website. It's a multiple point score. And if the patient has actually less than Six points and they are low risk, moderate risk between six, seven to ten and more than 11 is high risk. And at the time of enrollment, you need to have an, absolute contraindications as non congenital long QT syndromes. If you have inpatients with baseline more than 500 milliseconds, or the Tisdale score more than 11, you should not give them the medication. If they have a baseline QTC for outpatient more than 480, 80, and again, a high Tisdale score, they should not be receiving this medication. And there are more suggestions for the monitoring of these patients, like, Uh, You're checking their potassium, magnesium, looking at their medications, discontinuing patient therapy among those that you find now evidence of syncope or polymorphic VT and reduce the therapy in those patients who have QT prolongation as they happen. And there are some more recommendations for uh, impact on looking at the uh, how shall we continue how shall we adjust some medication based on the QT prolongation? So this is like mainly an overview of what we are seeing with the current cardiology practice. But now if we look at the cardiac patients who are getting uh, our routine cardiology practice, how this is happening in this era, And as you know, we are trying to adapt to the pandemic. We are obviously following social distancing. We're looking at an important factor, which is balancing safety of the providers and patients. We're limiting elective, non-urgent diagnostic or therapeutic, uh, therapeutic procedures to the minimum. So we're only doing things that are absolutely necessary in this period during the time of the pandemic. We continue patient screening for symptoms as well as continuing staff and provider work within units. We are consolidating that. And one important aspect, which I didn't want to go much into, which is mostly moving to virtual visits. As you see, most of this happened on an urgent basis and there have been some regulations to allow that. It will be interesting to see how many of that will be now the new norm after this virus or this pandemic is over and how often are we going to use virtual visits for uh, patient care when it is possible with like for like for example, healthcare counseling, checking results, testing results, and others. I think as a community, as a cardiology community, we need to look at some adaptations. These are difficult times, and we need to adapt to the pandemic. This is from my uh, friend, Dr. Samir Ahmed, from the uh, Family and Youth Institute, where they recommend this applies to us at the personal level, but also at the family level and practice level, which is We need to practice tolerating uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty in these patients. Tackle the anxiety paradox. Transcend existential anxiety. Don't underestimate human resiliency, especially among physicians, but also among our families and patients. Don't get sucked into overestimating the threat. And this is like if you go on social media, you can see either complete ignorance of the threat but also potentially underestimating it. We should strengthen self-care and seek professional help if needed. But for our practices, I think there are the Annals of Internal Medicine just yesterday put in some nice guidelines for for practice in general, and they called it the calmer map for COVID planning among our uh, practice. So the C stands for check-in, looking at our practice itself, ask about COVID, try to look at our uh, patients, lay out issues with our practice, with our colleagues, with our trainees, and also motivate them to be, to choose a proxy and to talk about the matters. Also expect emotions, these are very difficult times, and also record the discussion and try to understand the questions for these. And this is very important for any of us who have any leadership role, whether within healthcare, but otherwise in these current times. But also for our regular practice, other than the uh, personal touch in there, we need to look at the recommendations. What are we going to do with our practices? And almost every professional society that I know of have put in some recommendations to guide physicians and practices on what to do and what not to do in these days. One of them, I'm gonna start with cardiac imaging, and clearly it's a lot of the recommendation have balanced the benefit of the patients as well as the safety of the staff for these Uh, patient and always follow the hospital guidelines. I'm not gonna go on the details of this, but here a couple considerations. The first one is cardiac imaging, which we routinely use in the pre-COVID era, should only in this era be performed if appropriate, and only if it is likely to substantially change patient management or be life saving and also use the imaging modality that has the best capability to meet the request. But also at the same time, balance that with the risk of infection for staff, technicians, physicians, nurses, and look at the potential for contamination of equipment and how are we going to potentially clean it after. Also things to consider in these patients that we may gather more information from whatever tests we are able to do. For example, if we can do a coronary CT angiography instead of a cath, if it is clinically indicated, that might be a way to go. If you have a chest CT and you can gather more information about coronaries and calcifications for these patients. And echocardiogram should only be done routinely in patients with COVID, but try, should not be routinely done in patients with COVID, and we should try to do potentially limited studies to limit our staff exposure and try to focus the study to answer the clinical question that is needed. Similarly, the American Society of ECHO puts guidelines and clearly mentioned the things which is focusing on staff safety, but also along the same guidelines, limiting should not be routinely routinely done, and limiting the um, staff exposure among these patients. But this is especially important in TEEs, where there is the highest risk of exposure to patients. The Society of Guidelines uh, Cardiac CT also put some guidelines. And actually, I want, I'm not going to go through the details of what we need, but I want to highlight that now if we have two tests that could answer the same question and one with a lower risk of exposure to staph, then that might be considered. And one of them is comparing TEE versus CT to looking at the left atrial appendage in patients with atrial uh, fibrillation prior to cardioversion. So if you need to do a cardioversion and you have the two options, it's better to do a CT at this time to improve staff safety, to limit staff safety. TAVR is a hot topic. Sky put in some guidelines where now if a patient has this asymptomatic severe AS, we should put this on hold for now. I should only be doing those patients who have, are in patients with severe AS and have multiple other risk factors, including Class 3 and for New York Heart Failure Association, or if they come with high risk features like syncope and others. EP procedures also, the American Heart Association put some guidelines for these. And I'm not again I'm not gonna go through the details. This have been could be addressed in specific talks in there, but we're also limiting the procedures to the minimum that is needed for actually improve care in these patients, and but also at the same time, allow for staff safety. I've shown these guidelines for who should go to the CAT lab among patients with acute coronary syndrome. We also put in, in from the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology and Society of Nuclear Medicine guidelines for our nuclear labs and who should be done at this time. And I think what we need to also, what we took in this approach is actually looking at every step of the test from the time of ordering to the time of performing and after the test. And these are some of the highlights. What we want is to postpone all non-urgent tests, screen patients by phone before arrival, we highly recommend selective testing, very selective testing for COVID positive patients if it's going to impact uh, care. And this is not among patients who are probably in the ICU. These are probably among those ones who have very limited symptoms. Maintain safe distance between patient and staff. Use protective equipments as indicated. Minimize use of exercise tests. We all believe in the role of exercise testing and the ability of of its added prognostic value. But in this time, we want to limit the use of exercise because it increases risk of exposure to the staff. Try to interpret and report images remotely and perform virtual imaging consult when you want to discuss the result with your colleagues. Again, we mentioned we wanted the protocols that that are used to be mainly the ones that have lower risk of exposure to the staff, thinking of the staff at this time. ASNIC did a webinar with our colleagues from across the world, actually, and learning from their experiences and lessons from different parts. And some of them are nice lessons for us to learn also. And one of them is like looking at the machines themselves. And this applies not only to nuclear medicine, but also CT and MRIs. And try to put a disinfecting spray in waiting areas. Actually, this was tested in China. Also, very important, we underestimate this. Try to clean the keyboard using disinfecting wipes. And also look at cleaning the fresh air and conditioner almost daily they did it over there. The doorknobs could be a source of spreading the infection and these need to be cleaned uh, uh, frequently and finally spray air disinfectant in the control room. And this is like one of those sites in China where actually where they were, they put actually social distancing in the waiting room. So now you have, you're not gonna have patients or relatives in the waiting area waiting. So they have nice spread and social distancing there. I'm gonna finish up in a few minutes looking just quickly at the big data and artificial intelligence in this era. And there are a lot of initiatives, especially looking at deep learning and this era try to interpret these images automatically and I'll leave that maybe for next week, Grand rounds. But there are a lot of societies who started to look at registries like the American Heart Association. They announced that they want to create as part of the Get With The Guidelines registry, a COVID-19 data registry. So this is not biorepository but also looking at EACVI echo registry where they want deals who perform echoes or interpret echoes on COVID patients to log in the findings. It takes about a couple minutes in there and it, it will help us understand the scope of findings in these patients. This is from the news also looking at experts at Stanford and AI trying to look at potentially pulling data from our EMR and try to get a prediction of who are the patients that might worsen. This have been tested and used before in any other critical ill patient, but now trying to customize it to COVID patients. So the computer will alert you that once you're admitting the patient, and as you gather information in the EMR, that it will tell you this patient is going to be at high risk of mortality, and further care should be put for this patient even before Uh, some of these clinical findings may be clinically uh, forward there are also some nice information about like coronavirus on looking at google trends for example this is available to anyone so i went on google and put in coronavirus and you can see that in the us where i limited my, my search but you can search everywhere we were not too concerned about this in january we were like started toward the end of february to have some concern but March come and now you can see our hit of search about coronavirus but also this might be a nice tool for research so for example if you search on google trends why i can't smell so this is kind of the search and now suddenly you get the bump And now we're getting a sense that loss of smell might be associated with coronavirus infection. And now it's considered one of the clinical signs and symptoms on these patients. And you can see here that now this is going up in terms of Google Trends and search. So there are a lot of potential information that we can even get from all the data that we have available. And finally, I'm gonna finish up with CME and GME because this virus had a toll on the cardiology community both at the CME level and graduate medical education level and as you know most of our information came up recently on twitter so here you can see there were like many classical cardiology intense debates that were going on calcium scores revascularizations ischemia trial but COVID kind of silenced all of them. And COVID now, everybody is just mm-hmm. discussing COVID, cardiology and non-cardiology. Every now and then you get a, I have a new paper or anyone looking for a postdoc, but most of the discussions now, cardiology and non-cardiology are, either, are related to COVID. And finally, we're learning from there on all these case reports, webinars, and others. And finally, medical conferences, as you know, have been kind of like potentially canceled, put off. But there was a new venue that came out. The ACC, for example, put their made their conference virtual. And one of the things about it, on the first day, for example, nearly 50,000 attendees from across the globe have attended, which may may prompt us to try to think on how are we going to look at these patient, at these conferences and what are we going to potentially do about them in the future. And this is our own Dr. Van der Be- uh, Dr. V. from electrophysiology presenting his randomized clinical trial on this meeting last, on Sunday during the meeting and for fellows many of their training activities actually have been switched to virtual on zoom and others we at the american society of nuclear cardiology took this virtual further and we thought that maybe what we want to do is to give them a virtual nuclear cardiology elective so starting from april 6 to april 17 attendings and from these institutions, including ours, but also University of Virginia, Brigham and Women. And this was an initiative led by the ASNIC president, Dr. Durbala, who clearly now we're going for two hours, uh, giving them one lecture and reviewing cases. We have 350 plus fellows who are going between two to four p.m. Eastern Standard Time looking at live cases and this may be a good way to actually to potentially keep it up for the future especially to tap it into other modalities like for example ekg readings and other imaging reading this is no replacement than real life clinical experience but also something to keep in mind to augment to how we train fellows in the future. And this is an excellent initiative that is clearly drawing the attention of different fellows from different programs. So I want to finish up with this slide that comes from Dr. Ferrari, Roberto Ferrari, who is the past president of ESC and close friend, who put in like, how did this affect us in the cardiology community? Organizational-wise, clinical-wise, it really changed our professional priorities. It resulted in our clinical activities being disrupted now. Some places are becoming, cardiologists are taking care of critically ill patients and COVID-19 patients, including our own institution and the CCU and others. But also it has an emotional, psychological aspect, which many of our colleagues and clearly sounded voiced out looking at the sense of unpreparedness and inadequacy. There is a fear and anxiety, the fear of suspending time and changing priorities. So once we learn about this and we get prepared for this, we will all together defeat this virus and get back to our normal, regular life hopefully soon. And thanks for your attention. Great.
2: Wonderful, Moaz. That was a really, really outstanding uh, and very timely presentation. Uh, It's what is the minimal viral load that's required to be detectable by PCR?
1: Again, the PCR technique, I mean, it really takes on the swab. So uh, this probably have to be addressed more toward our colleagues in laboratory medicine. But the point here is among those patients who are detected uh, the PCR, one of the reasons we got a false negative is the adequacy of the swab. So if you don't get a good swab, then you're probably not gonna have a positive test even among those patients. So it's very important to get these swabs adequately, but what is the minimum viral load, this probably should be addressed to a uh, laboratory medicine.
2: Yeah, and I think the key point though is that, you know, in a high pretest likelihood, uh, even a negative uh, PCR test shouldn't exclude Uh, the potential of this patient having COVID disease, I think, as you mentioned. Um, Okay, so a couple other questions here. One is, uh, when should troponin levels be drawn? Would you do it in uh, people with abnormal EKG, only those with hemodynamic instability, uh, for everybody?
1: So that's a very good question. So it depends if you wanna take which side of the debate right now so the acc tells you like really to draw it on patients where it will potentially explain some of the going things obviously patients and the ICUs will need it but what about those patients who are just like minor symptoms who are on the wards and others Uh, the acc unless you have a clinical suspicion of cardiac involvement positive ekg chest pain maybe others you probably should not do it however there are a group, especially if you have high sensitivity troponin urine in your institution, uh, it is a high-risk marker. So if you draw it and it is negative, that's kind of reassuring that this is still a relatively low-risk patient. But if you draw it and find it positive, that doesn't mean that this patient is having acute coronary syndrome. You can use it potentially to prognosticate mm-hmm. this patient and see that this is a... Uh, more of a high risk marker in this patient and this patient should be monitored closely maybe move them to a higher upscale unit and potentially allow them to get further care in the uh, uh, versus uh, further advances in their management so not every positive troponin in this patient population is going to be an acute coronary syndrome as we mentioned a lot of them are going to be myocarditis, demand ischemia, uh, just the effect of lactate, uh, lactic acidosis, hypoxia, and others, but it is a good prognostic market as we knew across the years in these critically ill patients. Uh,
2: So there's a couple of questions uh, with regard to, you know, concern of uh, microthrombosis uh, with the disease. And uh, I think a couple of questions are along the lines of is there any role for anticoagulation in these so, patients?
1: This was actually very much discussed. There is no consensus about it, especially the use of lytics among those patients that you think they might have myocarditis. There was one case I removed actually for the sake of time that clearly has pericardial effusion, and once you want to give lytics, mm-hmm. you think it's myocarditis. Pericarditis, this might transform into hemorrhagic. So, so if you think that this is an acute coronary syndrome and there is probably more of a concern than it has to be probably more in the case-by-case case kind of assumption. However, if there is any high-risk future or high risk of bleeding because these patients might have gone to DIC, might go into decreased platelets and others, and these patients may be potentially at high risk of developing complications from that. So I think it has to be more addressed into case-by-case uh, make sure that there is no fusion, this is not perimyocarditis in these patients. And uh, look at, there have been some reports because this is more of a thrombotic kind of situation. Uh, colleagues who work in the ICU and probably next week they can, might allude to that but on multiple webinars where ICU doctors have reported that there is increased catheter thrombosis in these Mm -hmm. patients so their catheters actually clot way more frequently than usual Uh, and uh, they report that this might be a prothrombotic state and there have been multiple reports of pulmonary embolism maybe DVT in these patients so it makes sense to put to use some anticoagulation but you have to weigh it and every patient across the risk benefit in in these patients. Yeah,
2: great. And let me just finish off with one last question. Um, You know, obviously, I think uh, you touched on the fact that, you know, if we have patients that present with acute MI, you know, uh, we now start to rethink whether we take them for primary PCI versus give them lytic therapy. And what's your approach then? What would you recommend in somebody who's gotten lytic therapy, looks like they've been successful, What's your risk stratification in these patients afterwards? So
1: obviously you have to use your institution recommendation and almost every institution have come up with a protocol. So what I would recommend number one, but if we go like maybe 15, 20 years ago, I mean, uh, before this advent of primary PCI everywhere, there have been non-invasive stratification has been kind of widely used on these patients And we at Methodist under the leadership of Dr. Memerian, for example, uh, did the the INSPIRE trial, which looked at those patients and safety of myocardial perfusion imaging in these patients prior to discharge. Uh, There were times where we used to do symptom-limited stress Mm -hmm. testing in these patients to decide whether they need to go to the cath lab or not. So I think in these extraordinary times, maybe we can revert back to some of these and select patients who do not demonstrate any major uh, criteria that will make us think that they need to go to the CAT lab or rescue PCI. So among those patients who are stable, I think there is enough scientific evidence to suggest that such an approach, at least temporizing them and planning Mm -hmm. their discharge, and maybe later on when all this kind of Epidemic is over. Revisit their clinical case, assess them further by any other modality mm-hmm. you feel is appropriate. But I think in the acute phase, there is enough evidence in the literature that if the patient have a symptom limited stress test, or have a nuclear myocardial perfusion imaging which does not show major findings, we have data to support that they can be safely discharged and managed long term mm-hmm. by their physician until their. Until this pandemic is over. Yeah.
2: Well, so, yeah, and I think it really kind of points out the fact that in some ways we're going back to our basics. And I think for a lot of us, uh, whether we're imagers, whether we're preventive cardiologists, I think we all need to brush back up on some of our critical care cardiology that was part of our training. Uh, and I think also remember the way we used to practice 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, for those of us that have been around for a little bit longer, uh, I think maybe it's a little bit of a transition for some of the fellows who have only known the current way of practicing. But I think this is very timely. So thank you, everybody. And thank you, Molas, for for coming today and doing this presentation. Thank
1: Thank you. you.
0: Well, that's our show for today. And thanks for listening. What are your experiences with COVID-19 in cardiac patients? We'd love to hear from you. So send us a tweet using hashtag CVNow. And don't forget to tag at DeBakeyCVEDU. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can find more of our digital cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.